Welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm Carrie Sassine, and we're here today talking about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. I'm joined, remotely of course, by my colleagues Kevin O'Connell and Dylan George, who are part of the BeNext team at InQtel. BeNext works at the intersection of biotechnology, innovation, and public health. The team is tackling the challenge that we, the world, is facing today. How can we prepare for and combat infectious disease outbreaks? We've asked Kevin and Dylan to talk with us today about the epidemiology of COVID-19 and its diagnostic tools and testing. Kevin and Dylan, welcome. Hi, uh, I'm Kevin O'Connell, um, a member of the BeNext team at InQtel. I've been uh, uh, in this role at InQtel for about 12 years, and before that, uh, I worked for about 10 years at what is now called the Combat Capabilities Development Command Chemical Biological Center, or formerly known as the Edgewood ChemBio Center, uh, a U.S. Army facility uh, that focuses on biological defense research, um, <clears throat> among other things. And uh, I brought um, that experience of uh, working both with the private sector and uh, with the, the Department of Defense and BioDefense uh, to my work at InQtel. Uh, BeNext was uh, formed about uh, is a team at InQtel that was formed about five years ago. And at InQtel, it has two roles. Uh, the first role is um, the oversight, uh, diligence, vetting, and management of InQtel's investments broadly across the life sciences. Uh, and that is uh, a role that we inherited from, uh, uh, from our historic involvement in investing uh, with InQtel uh, proper. The other role that, that BeNext plays <clears throat> is in highlighting the opportunity in technology, especially biotechnology, uh, for the nation to help combat and, and increase its preparedness against infectious disease. And we've been uh, working on that for about five years now. And of course, now here we find ourselves in the middle of the, the COVID-19 outbreak. So I'm joined uh, with my colleague, uh, Dylan George. Dylan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, everybody. My name is uh, Dylan George. Um, I've been with InQtel for the past four years, helping Kevin and the team do exactly that, vet life science and healthcare deals. But also, um, you know, thinking about what technologies could really help us in uh, outbreak scenarios. And that's why we're trying to get information out and trying to help people understand the risks uh, and potential solutions in the current uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Prior to working at InQtel, um, I had various positions within the federal government, uh, the most recent of which was um, working in the White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy in 2014 and 15, helping out with the Ebola virus disease outbreak in West Africa. Um, uh, much of what we're seeing uh, now is a replay of some of the things that we learned then or didn't seem to learn then. But um, we're very, uh, and prior to that, I was uh, worked in uh, Health and Human Services in the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Uh, and prior to that, as a civilian in the Department of Defense, the trajectory of my career has been trying to help with advanced analytics and in helping us understand the, the risks associated with infectious diseases for civilians, warfighters, or what kinds of medical countermeasures we need to confront uh, pandemics and other bioattacks. <clears throat> um, Dylan's an epidemiologist by training, uh, and I'm a bacteriologist. And the other members of the team have backgrounds in infectious disease medicine, 
disaster response and emergency medicine, occupational health medicine, uh, bioinformatics, and AI. And so uh, uh, our small but mighty team is, uh, is actively working across all of these disciplines um, to, uh, to identify opportunities like Dylan said, and, um, uh, and to help EQTEL invest in what we think are the most promising ones to help build an industrial base for the nation uh, so that there are uh, active firms that the nation can turn to, um, as it is doing right now uh, in the event of um, a serious outbreak. So, um, Dylan, you want to launch with uh, some of the main points that we want to make today? Yeah, no, there's there's a couple key points that we really want to make today. It's like, um, uh, first, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is serious, it's dynamic, and as we've already experienced per personally and collectively in the United States and, and in other countries, it's disruptive, uh, and it will continue to be. Uh, you know, the pandemic will infect 20 to 60 percent of the world um, based on what we know of things. Uh 80% of those infected will have mild illness and then recover, which that, so that's a, a bit of a silver lining. Um, but we need to slow the spread to protect the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. Uh, there is a wave of uh, cases coming and it's crashing on our healthcare systems right now, and we need to be able to support the healthcare system so they don't go under. Um, our individual and collective actions will have consequences for this response. And uh, we can all do our part because we're all in this together. Now, those are the, the, the big points that we want to make sure that everyone really knows about as we go forward. So um, <clears throat> the, the seriousness and the disruption, I, I think most of our listeners uh, are, are living at the moment. Can you touch a little bit more on what we mean about dynamic? Yeah, I mean, we are learning as we go. Um, there's things about this because this is what is referred to as a novel emerging infectious disease. We haven't seen this pathogen in the human population prior to uh, November or December of last year. And so we're learning as we go in terms of how it spreads and how it uh, creates disease in individuals. Uh, um, you know, and so it, it's dynamic from that standpoint. And it's also dynamic from the standpoint that um, we are um, – uh, experiencing more and more cases in an exponential growth. Uh, and so how that's impacting and disrupting our lives is um, we go from zero to 60 very fast uh, in this response. Um, in January, no one thought that we would be where we are now in March. And so thinking about where we are going to be in May now, where we are in March is going to be, is going to be hard to think about, um, could be tragic, but we need to start thinking about that. And so there's th that dynamicism associated with this outbreak going forward. <clears throat> yeah, and to, to foot stomp on the, the last um, bullet point that you mentioned earlier, the, that uh, part of the dynamicism, I think, also is reflected in our own behaviors back towards the outbreak. Um, uh, the way that, um, that people respond to this, um, that's, that, is, that is within their control, is going to make a huge difference in that impact uh, the size of that wave in May and, and, and further into the summer, I think. No, I, I, have to ask, I completely agree that that kind of dynamic of how we react as individuals and as communities mm -hmm. will be a big factor in, in where we're going to be in May um, or in later on in this year. I completely agree. You know, 
I mean, one of the things that I do really want to footstomp as well is though the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we should think about it as the 9-11 of our generation. Uh, mm -hmm. We should be thinking about it on that level. One of the main differences between this and 9-11 is that 9-11 happened on one day. Yep. We're seeing the slow rollout of 9-11 over weeks to months, but it's of the same magnitude. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what causes me to be scared about this outbreak. I mean, I'm anxious, I'm concerned, and I should be, and we all should be about what's going on because we've, we've seen how it's disrupting us in our, in, in multiple ways. Um, you know, but I also think that things are going to get harder before they get better in the next coming weeks. Um, and we're all going to have to do our part, like you had just mentioned, um, as we sacrifice and, and try to, to help out breaking chains of transmission and, and, and moving forward. <clears throat> That's right. You know, I think um, I think uh, <clears throat> this is an opportunity uh, for us to become uh, the most recent version of the greatest generation. We, you know, uh, in, in big ways and small, uh, as, a, as a nation, we are all going to have to pull ourselves together. Now, that's a bit of a pep talk uh, in the middle of what uh, is uh, going to be a, a reasonably um, technology-focused discussion going forward, but, um, but I thought that was an important message for, uh, for us to get out uh, at the beginning here. Yeah, we're definitely in this together, and together we can defeat the virus. I completely agree, and I love your reference to the greatest generation. I think it's spot on. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so going forward, um, uh, Dylan, you want to talk a little bit about the epidemiology of the outbreak, uh, it kind of its course, um, and uh, and kind of where it is right now, and what um, and what epidemiologists have been thinking and saying about this uh, in recent days. Yeah, and so to information level set, I mean, I'll start off with saying it's like you know what is COVID nineteen and what is mm -hmm. what is the pathogen that really is at the heart of all of this, and, and you know there are a handful of coronaviruses. There are about four ish or so that are circulating in the human population. They're either commensal in the human population or they they create minor illnesses and they're not that much of an interest. You know, SARS CoV two is the virus that has just recently emerged in humans. Um, and is causing the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, this is what is referred to as a newly emerged infectious disease. We don't know much about it. Um, we're learning on a daily basis more and more. Um, based on what we know from comparing genomic sequences of the virus found in animals, you know, like pat, uh, um, bats and pangolins, um, to the ones that we find in humans infected with the pandemic, it looks like uh, this has been a spillover from animals to humans. Um, this, this process of a pathogen spilling over from animals to humans is called a, a zoonosis or zoonotic transmission. And so for all of those uh, Scrabble nerds out there in the audience looking for another Z word, that's a, that's a good one. Um, Two O's. Three O's. Yes. Z-O-O. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, COVID-19 is uh, the disease. Um, SARS uh CoV-2 um, is the pathogen, and that's what spilled over in humans, uh, likely near Wuhan, China. And from this spillover, a few people were infected, likely back in November or December of last year. Those few infected more in their communities, and those um, extra people were infected more and more until there was a significant outbreak in Wuhan to the point of breaking their hospital system or their healthcare system um, and so that they couldn't deal with all the cases. And that was where it started. Um, from there, we've been, a, we've sparked outbreaks in many countries until 
So many countries have been affected and their healthcare systems are stressed to the point where Italy now um, has the highest number of cases anywhere in the world in, in, in a locality. And their healthcare system is stretched beyond its capabilities uh, in significant and tragic ways. Um, on uh, March 11th, just recently, the uh, WHO declared that COVID-19 is, um, this outbreak is a pandemic, meaning it's, it's across the globe, it's spreading wildly, and it's stressing healthcare systems and is a serious threat to everybody involved. <clears throat> Um, so, uh, you mentioned 20 to 60%. Um, can you tell, uh, people around the world, uh, will be infected by this? What's the, what's the origin of that, uh, of that estimate? And, um, uh, and does, do we, do you think we're on that, that, do you think that trajectory appears to be still correct? Yeah, there's a couple of epidemiological features of COVID-19, and there's indicators that we look at from the epidemiology that help us understand the risk of any particular pathogen that's spreading in humans. Um, and these two key uh, factors are spread and clinical severity. Um, excuse me. Now, now when I talk about it, these I'll, I'll talk about some numbers here, but keep in mind these uh, indicators are not absolutes. They vary over time, place, and circumstances, and so we need to keep assessing them as things go. Going back to our discussion, this is a dynamic uh, situation where we're learning more as we go. <clears throat> so first, spread, assessing spread, going to this point of do we know 20 to 60 percent of people will be um, infected? You know, the way that epidemiologists think about spread is this concept called R-naught, um, which is the average number of in, uh, infected people by one person that is infected in a naive population. So if I'm infected, how many people would I subsequently infect? And then you can classify that as it, is it one, two, or 10? Um, and that tells you how quickly something is spreading in the population. If the R naught is above one, then the potential for sustained spread uh, is, is possible in a population. If the R naught is below one, then you wouldn't anticipate sustained spread in a population. Um, and that just kind of goes to the definition of what R naught is. And so initially, um, epidemiologists and, and modelers have estimated this uh, R naught number to be between 1.5 and 3.5. Um, compare that against other coronaviruses like MERS and SARS. MERS is like 0.3 to 0.8. SARS was in the range of 2 to 5. Yeah. And so it's, it's going, going faster than what we've seen from, from MERS from seasonal flu uh, going forward. So these estimates, you know, really depend on the context and will change through time, but it's spreading fairly, um, uh, fairly robustly uh, in, in multiple countries. And that, a derivation of that number is what allows us to get to an estimate of 20 to 60% of the population being infected by this going forward, based on what we're seeing in the case data. <clears throat> So then back to our back to our uh, our mention earlier of the of the consequences of people's actions. You know, this uh, this phrase flatten the curve is everywhere now. And there's a, a diagram of a very tall, narrow curve superimposed on a longer, flatter curve that described two possible you know outcomes of uh, of people uh, taking action. Can you kind of relate that? to the, the, the notions that you just, the, the R-naught, the, the, the infectivity and the, and the case fatality rate, the severity? 
Well, I mean, to, to, to finalize that kind of point is like, um, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at as well is this, the clinical severity of this pathogen. I mean, it's typically estimated by the case fatality rate or the infection fatality rate. And that tells us how many people will, will, seri- will have serious um, problems with this as well. And so the combination of those two concepts, how well it spreads and how um, clinically ill people get, the combination of those two working together tells us will give us a sense of how severe this thing will be for a healthcare system. And so to go to your point about, um, and so just as a point, um, based on China data, the case fatality rate is anywhere from 0.3 to 1. Relative to seasonal flu, that's three to 10 times more um, deadly than, than seasonal flu. And we know that people die um, in the um, tens of thousands of people die in the United States every year from seasonal flu. And so mm-hmm. this is worse than uh, seasonal flu on orders of magnitude. So those two things come together is, is really challenging. <clears throat> now, going to this idea of flattening the curve, if we have um, a lot of people going to a hospital, if we, if, for example, Will Smith did this really lovely ex- explanation of flattening the curve just recently this last that week. Was so, yeah, that no, was- it was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was probably the best description I've heard yet. But essentially, he says if you have a hospital that can, has 60 beds and can deal with 60 people coming into the hospital, if you have 80 people that come, they're not going to be able to deal with that. 20 people will miss out and, and get right. worse care than the than the, the other 60. So if we all can use social distancing to stop mm-hmm. the spread or slow it down right. so that the healthcare system could only see maybe 40 people coming to the hospital at any one time, that mm-hmm. means everyone will get the care that they need. Yes. Uh, and the hospital will not break, but will be able to deal with the illnesses as they come in. Um, and that's the idea of this whole crash of the wave being very acute and tall or very, or flattened out. So flattening the curve will save more people. Right. And so, you know, based on the, the many conversations that we're having uh, among the BNEXT team and with our uh, and with our many colleagues in government and in industry, how, what are some of the ways that technology can be brought forward in addition to our individual actions um, uh, to uh, to help with the fight? Well, you know, I mean, uh, you, you had mentioned it before, though, too. It's like one of the key factors that we need to, to put into play here and that has been successful in so many other outbreaks is we need to be able to identify who's sick and mm-hmm. who's infected, isolate them so that they're not transmitting to other people or spreading the disease to other people, and then also treating them so they can get better very quickly. So this idea of identify, isolate, and treat is Mm -hmm. critical in moving forward. So, I mean, the question is back to you. I mean, diagnostics in that whole chain is essential. And so, you know, um, but we've been challenged. We've failed at diagnostics in the United States and uh, for a range of reasons. But um, you've been at the forefront of pushing forward diagnostics and trying to help our team understand those diagnostics and figure out how we can bring some of the latest technology going forward. So I would, I would just lob it back to you. Sure, absolutely. So diagnostics. So, so one bright spot in this entire story uh, was the relatively quick turnaround of Chinese scientists in isolating the virus and sequencing its genome and then publishing that genome um, around, uh, around the 10th or 12th of January. And that was important for a variety of reasons. There's a very powerful detection test 
uh, which is called the polymerase chain reaction. Um, somebody won the Nobel Prize for imagining how that would work back in the 1980s. And uh, the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, um, is uh, a very sensitive test that depends on knowing uh, the sequence of the genome of the virus. If you know that sequence, you can target pieces of it that are unique to the genome of the virus and make a test for its presence. And PCR can give you a yes-no answer. Is the virus present or not? And it can also give you a semi, a, a good estimate of the quantity of the virus that may be present in the sample. So having that information uh, was, was critical early on, and the Chinese did publish it. Uh, and it was acted on very quickly. Um, a coronavirus uh, specializing laboratory in Berlin, uh, within a day, uh, was able to devise and come up with a, a, a PCR test uh, uh, for the corona, for, for this, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, uh, and they published that, and they were able to test it. Um, they didn't have samples of SARS-CoV-2 on hand, but they did have samples of other coronaviruses in their laboratory. And the test that they made that specific for SARS-CoV-2 was not able to detect the other coronaviruses. So they knew that the test was very specific. They also were able to make synthetic little short pieces of the genome that they could use as a positive control, if you will. And so they knew that they could detect that. So that got immediately published uh, under the auspices of WHO. And a number of countries around the world have used those tests as the foundation for making test kits that they have then distributed uh, to the laboratory testing infrastructure in those various countries. So that is a, uh, that is, uh, that's a, that's a bright spot here. Um, in parallel with that effort, the CDC designed their own uh, tests using that published genomic data. Um, and then uh, things went off uh, the rails a little bit. The CDC began to uh, manufacture kits for the purpose of pushing them out to a, a group of institutions called the Laboratory Response Network. And there were some glitches in the manufacturing of those tests, which slowed their spread out to the Laboratory Response Network. Uh, the CDC for a while was the only place in the country that was doing approved tests. Uh, they got a very quick uh, what's called emergency use authorization from the FDA to uh, to do that test, um, and their their kits got an EUA as well. Um, but that began to but then uh, but then things began to slow down. Um, there was uh, there was generally um, a bureaucratic slowness to get uh, tests approved that more and more laboratories uh, could do. Any laboratory that has sufficient resources can develop one of these PCR tests given that genome sequence, and some of them began to do it on their own. And we don't have time in this podcast to do a complete postmortem of, uh, of that situation up to this point. But suffice it to say that uh, if you go to the FDA's website, you can see now a growing list. There were eight or nine of them as of yesterday, and every day or two, another test or test kit gets approved, and so the U.S. is beginning to ramp up the capacity to perform these PCR tests. Uh, these tests require a fairly expensive uh, piece of equipment. Uh, they're, uh, they're laboratory instruments. Uh, the largest and most sophisticated ones that have the highest throughput, you know, cost more than a million bucks apiece. Uh, others with lower capacity, of course, cost less, and there's a there's a broad installed base of these machines across the country, uh, large and small, in laboratories, uh, some research laboratories, 
In many clinical laboratories, there are already clinical PCR tests for other conditions. Uh, and so the, the rush is on now to make test kits that are usable in a variety of platforms, in a variety of instruments, so that as many people as possible in as many laboratories as possible can perform them. Um, the, the main concern that we have, however, and so that, that capability is going to ramp uh, and is ramping now. The main concern that we have, though, is that the turnaround time for these tests is measured in days. The, you know, when people go to these uh, drive up places where their noses or throats are swabbed, these swabs are collected and then they have to be delivered to one of these laboratories. And then they get in line and they get processed, you know, as quickly as the laboratories are capable of doing that. Uh, if you're at a hospital and you're sick and you present yourself because you think maybe you have uh, COVID-19, um, they have to treat you as though you do while they wait for your test to come back. And if you're sick for some other reason, uh, they are treating you uh, and they are uh, behaving around you using personal protective equipment, gowns and gloves and masks and so on, um, in ways uh, that they might not need to uh, if they knew you didn't have the disease. And so the inability to test quickly in hospitals at the point of care is adding an additional layer of stress on supplies of these uh, of these critical things that we need to keep healthcare workers safe. Um, you know, keeping healthcare workers safe who are treating people is absolutely critical here. As you say, if the if the wave crashes and the wave is sufficiently tall, if more than the the hypothetical 40 people show up who need critical care, um, and there are fewer healthcare workers to take care of them. Um, that's an additional stress in addition to the space and the ventilators uh, and other equipment that's necessary to take care of people. So um, uh, a great deal of, uh, of effort uh, is going on now that the, that the centralized laboratory and the clinical laboratory PCR capability is beginning to ramp of turning to, okay, now what, um, how do we now build the capacity to do this testing as close to the point of interaction with the patient as we possibly can. Um, there are technologies for doing that. Some of them are relatively new and have not yet been commercialized. Uh, and as you know, we've been in many of those conversations. Um, the, uh, uh, some of these companies are very young and they are working really hard and searching for large company partners who can help them scale uh, into the tens or hundreds of millions of units, we hope eventually, uh, that would be able to be distributed, uh, you know, as broadly as possible. Um, so for now, you know, I would suggest to the, to the listeners, um, you know, if you are, if you're feeling unwell, quarantine yourself at home, uh, use telemedicine, uh, to talk to people, uh, and determine whether a test is appropriate for you. Um, but, to the extent that uh, you don't feel that you need medical care, it's unclear whether uh, a COVID-19 test is going to make a vast difference in the outcome of, of how you're feeling. Um, you know, it's, it's very important until we ramp up that test capacity that as much of that capacity is reserved for doctors to tell, um, to, dis, you know, to discriminate uh, the sickest patients um, well, if, who are who are sick with COVID-19 versus those who are not. What, what I'd like to footstomp here is um, consult your doctors uh, in that in that process as well. It's like definitely what Kevin has said in terms of 
you you might not need to actually get a test, you but definitely talk to your doctor about whether or not it's appropriate for you or not. <clears throat> That's absolutely true. Um, it occurs to me that we 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 foot stomp a lot here at uh, at Bnext. Um, uh, that's our uh, that's our phrase. Thanks, Dylan, for uh, for uh, emphasis. So um, uh, we have a lot of, yeah. <laughs> we uh, there's a lot of things to emphasize on uh, on this podcast today. Um, so um, you know, I think in in the coming days, look for an increase in testing capacity. Um, uh, the speed at which that increases, um, you know, there's a few there's a few choke points. Um, there's been a lot of talk about scarcity of reagents or chemicals necessary to perform a variety of different parts uh, of this process. And some of those chemicals are required to get the RNA of the virus out of the swab and into uh, a clean form that then goes into the PCR reaction. And then other parts of this uh, perceived scarcity um, uh, have to do with the actual PCR chemicals themselves. And I say perceived because uh, not because these shortages are not actual, uh, but because I think different laboratories are experiencing different shortages at different parts of the country. Um, and there's a great effort out right now, both locally and uh, and regionally, to figure out um, what those shortages are and how to fill them. Uh, and those are everything from grassroots efforts of you know, academic laboratories, you know, uh, combing their shelves. Uh, to to see what's on hand that they can you know donate to laboratories that are doing testing, uh, to the very companies that are making the sample the so-called sample prep the RNA preparation chemicals uh, and the PCR test chemicals and uh, and ramping up the production of these kits uh, that are uh, approved by FDA uh, or have what's called the EU the emergency use authorization uh, strictly speaking in FDA speak that's not approval. Um, but are uh, but authorized to be used uh, to do this testing in the clinical setting. You know, in, in the diagnostic space as well, it's like the way that we do this in the United States healthcare system is you need a clinician or a medical a doctor to say who gets the test and who doesn't or orders up the test. One of the challenges associated with that is that people presenting to the, the healthcare system, mm -hmm. you don't want them to either, if they are infectious, you don't want them to infect the healthcare workers that would be the worst case scenario. You don't want them infecting other people at the hospital. That would be terrible too. And so to avoid people sitting in um, the, the waiting rooms, uh, infecting one another or infecting the healthcare workers, there's these great, this is a great technology that has been building in the United States and, and developing is telehealth or digital health so that people can actually interface with healthcare providers through mobile devices or through their computer and don't actually have to physically be at the healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. This is a great way of, of mitigating, you know, potential infections going between um, in individuals and, and, and um, uh, the healthcare workers. And so this is a way to um, save the healthcare system in, in some way. So this is great. Our colleague, Dan Hanfling, who's a absolutely wonderful colleague, he's been spearheading the efforts um, over the past year or so to try to help us think more um, deeply about how um, digital health and telehealth capabilities can be used for what this whole process that I described is self-triage, helping people either self-triage or connect to healthcare workers and get advice as to what they should do given their symptoms and their situation. Um, and so 
this is how uh, telehealth can actually improve the diagnostic capability is understanding who needs it, who doesn't, and they can stay home and protect the healthcare system. So, um, Dan, I'm confident um, uh, we'll, we'll find a time for to, to chat more deeply with Dan about this because he's been doing a lot of thinking about this and um, is doing incredibly great work right now to try to connect up various uh, healthcare uh, telehealth uh, providers with uh, uh, healthcare providers, and so that make sure that we can use this technology more effectively and at scale. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, you know, one of the things I was thinking about too is like, what's next? I mean, how do, how long do we we think that we're going to be in this situation? You know, um, Scott Gottlieb, who is the former commissioner of the the FDA, um, you know, he recently said uh, we didn't plan in January for March, but we can plan in March for May. And so there's a couple things that we need to think of right now to be ready in May. Because when we're looking at the cases mount and grow exponentially, it's like driving a car looking through your rearview mirror. Because as people get sick, there's an incubation period. They won't present. They won't develop this. So what we're seeing in cases now are because of transmission or spread that happened a week to two weeks ago. And so we need to be ready. We need to plan and we need to anticipate going forward. So what needs to happen? Well, we've already seen, broadly speaking, across the United States, social distancing to slow the spread and flatten the curve like we had talked about. These non-pharmaceutical interventions at scale are needed. They're coming online and they're warranted. And one of the things that I personally and I think collectively we want to talk about is please stay home. You know, uh, obey these kinds of um, uh, uh, social distancing sorts of requests. You know, isolate if you're feeling ill. Quarantine your family if that happens as well. School closures are a good thing. Stay home. That will help flatten the curve. So, um, yes, it, in, the, in the spirit of being the change that we want to see in the world, uh, we were going to originally come to our offices in Arlington and do this podcast in person, uh, but we have all elected to stay in our, uh, in our respective spaces and, uh, and do this uh, by um, uh, an Internet platform. Uh, for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, so what other things need to happen in this place? We need to preserve the healthcare system, as we've talked about a couple times in the, in the podcast. You know, enabling home treatment of sick individuals is something that's going to have to go on from now. We talked about telehealth capabilities, not only for in, enabling diagnostics going forward, but also for helping people that are in home treating for some of their loved ones that might be ill, getting the right medical advice, through your mobile device, through the computer, so that you can help care for those. Um, maybe, too, we might have to start thinking about um, uh, home visits by healthcare providers in some ways so that we can offload uh, what's happening in the healthcare system to the homes and move things going forward. Improved instructions for in-home caregivers, I think, is going to be something that needs to be uh, thought through going forward as well. Um, you know, uh, Kevin did a really lovely job of talking about some challenges that we've been seeing in the supply chain and manufacturing um, in terms of the, the, the sample collection for the swabs, the RNA extraction chemicals that we need. There's, there's a, a, a suite of other sorts of, of um, needed materials and equipment that are going to be in short supply. Things like ventilators to help people actually breathe that are in critical care. Things like transgenic mice for to do animal models to test. Yes. 
and vaccines surprisingly are in short supply too. You know, those poor little, you know, supercharged mice. Um, um, you know, we need to find ways of uh, reaching out to people that might have quote unquote excess capacity in the academic communities in the private sector and matching it up for uh, with people that are working in the healthcare system in a more expeditious and scaled way. So we need to be starting thinking about that uh, and repurposing manufacturing systems in, in ways like that. So enabling that supply chain and manufacturing systems to move at, at, at scale. Uh, that's something else that we need to do to preserve the healthcare system. Um, the, the last thing that I would, I would, I think I would foot stomp on as well is this idea that as we're thinking about universal non-pharmaceutical interventions or social distancing across all, all sectors of, of society right now, we, to keep the economy running, we're, we need to think about pivoting to a targeted application of social distancing at, so that we can get people back working um, in the economy. So this whole idea of identifying, isolating, and treating people is critical, but we need to be able to do that at scale. Um, South Korea has shown us how this can be effective. We need to think in the United States about how we can do this. And so we need uh, more testing capacity, like Kevin was talking about earlier. We need faster testing capacity, like Kevin was talking about. So more drive-through testing, more at-home sampling, and faster capabilities to do things at high throughput. And critically, as Kevin pointed out, we need to have um, – point of care diagnostics to help get answers fast um, so that we're not draining PPE. So um, I want to just, uh, I want to flag another technology that you and I have talked a lot about this week, Dylan, uh, and it has the fancy name serology. And serology is a different kind of test from PCR. Um, and it's a little bit retrospective uh, because it looks at the, uh, at the response of the human to having been exposed to the virus. Uh, if you've been exposed to the virus and you've had it, you have built up antibodies against it. And so one of the ways in which we can help identify people that may be already post-exposure or even post-COVID-19 is to understand whether they've built antibodies against it. And this, you know, identifying who these people are, because there's a, there's a growing level of, uh, uh, of, I'll call it suspicion, that perhaps people who have had COVID-19 may at least in the near term be immune from reinfection. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, uh, opined on this recently. We don't know for sure that this is the case yet, but if it is, it'll be very important to get those people who are already past this back out of their houses and back at work. Uh, and that is, um, you know, that's a key part of getting the economy back up and running as quickly as possible here. So uh, stay tuned. People are actively working on that. There are some early studies that have been published. There are some devices that have been, uh, they're, they're, they act like a home pregnancy test kit. Uh, you don't pee on them. Uh, they require uh, a finger stick and a drop of blood um, uh, because that's where the antibodies are. Um, but this notion of identifying not only who is sick, but who is sick and already better is going to be a key part of really uh, broadening that recovery. Yeah, no, and, and so I think in, in closing, I mean, coming back to all this, I mean, these are the things that we need to do going forward, and among other things. Um, but as we said at the top, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic is serious and it's dynamic and it is disruptive. 
Um, we need to slow this spread to protect uh, the healthcare system, and um, our individual actions will definitely have consequences. And I, you know, I don't know how long this is going to be. La- this will last. It largely depends on um, how we respond as a community. It could be three months. It could be six months. It could be nine months. Um, I don't know how long, but it will end eventually, as other outbreaks and pandemics have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recently a colleague of mine reminded me that um, we need to be, we all need to be our best selves right now. Yes. And um, one of the things that, uh, because of his admonitions, I've been striving to be a little bit kinder, uh, a little bit more aware of others, and a little bit more patient. And I think that collectively, we need to be aware that, you know, this is stressing people out and it's uh, in ways that we don't fully understand right now. But together, we're all in this together and together we can defeat the virus. Absolutely. You know, um, there's a uh, no, none of us, of course, want to get sick. And many of us are behaving as though we don't want to get sick. And that's a good thing. But I think there's one other level of that behavior that Sanjay Gupta uh, said uh, earlier this week. He said, don't behave as though you don't want to get sick. Behave as though you already have the virus. And that really shifts, I think, our thinking about how we present ourselves to the world uh, and, and, and gives us you know, a mindset that is supercharged to help us avoid spreading the disease. Um, this, is, this has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you all today. It's like and one of the things that we'd like to do going forward is, is as we had said at the top, this is a dynamic situation. We will be learning more as we go. We would love to continue to have these conversations uh, with you and put out information as we learn more, uh, one. And especially we would love to have um, our, our, our good colleague Dan Hamfling come and talk more deeply about uh, the digital health and telehealth capabilities because there are some empower, there are some very powerful capabilities that need to be brought to bear at scale, and he's been thinking very deeply about that. So that, that's definitely one thing. But also as the epidemiology changes, we will try to bring um, some of the latest back to you. <clears throat> Absolutely. Is it is it too soon to say same bat time, same bat channel? We're, we're gonna we're in this for the long haul. So it's <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I, the last thing I would say about this, I mean, on that particular point, um, uh, people have described the the COVID nineteen as the nine eleven of our generation. Nine eleven happened in one day. Um, we reacted to it and we changed the way our society was structured based on that. We're witnessing a 9-11 magnitude event over many weeks. It's unfurling very slowly, and, but it has that same magnitude of importance and risk to our society. Um, we will be coming back to you and providing more information to you as this unfolds because we are committed to be with you and to help you understand what's happening to the best of our ability. Absolutely. Um, just like in the 9-11 uh, aftermath, uh, we learned and we will learn from this. Um, we want to be the change we want to see in the world, uh, and we want to help uh, you also demand the change that needs to happen going forward. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Thank you, subscribers and new listeners, for tuning in. You can hear the next Be Next podcast on the IQT website at www.iqt.org, or feel free to subscribe to the IQT podcast through your favorite podcast provider. And you can follow the work from Be Next on their website at bnext.org. 
Until next time.